is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on the text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. It happens to be the lectionary reading for the 15th Sunday after Pentecost, also known as proper number 18 in the year B cycle of the lectionary. It is the lectionary reading for September 5, 2021. In this second chapter of the epistle written by James, we find a movement now into understanding how Christian community is to live and to work together. It's an expansion on some of the truths James explored in the first chapter of this epistle or letter. We begin looking at verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2. And what I'd like to call the partiality problem that we find in this particular text. James makes it clear that partiality has no place within the community of Jesus, and that faith in Jesus, in many ways, is the opposite of personal favoritism. He says in verse 1, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. That faith in Jesus and personal favoritism are kind of opposing factors, if you will. They're opposing forces. And in in many ways, they pull and push the body of Christ apart. What's interesting in this particular text is that this word for personal favoritism that you read in verse 1, it's the only place in the entire New Testament where this particular word occurs. And it it has to do with um, a form of judgment that we make about others. Personal favoritism, lifting up one person over another, the definition seems obvious enough. But what the Greek word here is really trying to help us understand is that there's a a notion of judgment built into personal favoritism, that we're making uh, discretionary sort of choices about people, perhaps based on their appearance or other factors. James makes it clear that we can't hold on to these two things. And then in verse 2, James goes on and says, if anyone comes into your assembly with a gold ring or fine clothes, and then there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, that you make a distinction amongst them. What's interesting in verse 2 is rather than using the regular Greek word for church, ekklesia, for the word assembly, in verse 2, it's a different word. It's the Greek word for synagogue. And What James might be referring to here is that this is a different kind of gathering. This isn't necessarily the gathering, perhaps, of the church or worship together, but this is an assembly, a a convening, if you will. It could perhaps even be a form of a judicial gathering, a church meeting. And this kind of nuance in the text is important because there's a reference made here that when the church gathers, for whatever reason it's gathering, that they're not to practice any form of personal favoritism. But what's interesting is that this isn't the regular word for church, this is the word for some other kind of gathering. And many scholars think it's some kind of decision-making gathering in the life of the church, a discernment gathering, a church meeting, if you will. Now, notice the cultural signs of wealth here. If one person comes in in gold rings dressed in fine clothes, that, that may not be too different from the culture in which we find ourselves today. But in the ancient world, those who had rings and robes were not just regarded as people of uh, means. They were regarded as some of the most wealthy and affluent people around. So if someone were to come into your assembly with gold rings dressed in fine clothes, the assumption would be made that they were made of vast wealth. Likewise, when somebody came into your assembly with um, 
well, dirty clothes, as it says in verse 2, then one could conclude that this person is living in poverty. And this kind of rings us back to chapter 1, where James talks about how uh, the unrighteousness we wear is like filthy clothing. It's kind of the same language here we find in chapter 2, that James is somehow pointing us to the reality that when we discriminate against those who are in poverty, we ourselves find that we're the ones really wearing the dirty clothes of unrighteousness in doing so. Now, in any kind of assembly or gathering in the ancient world, there would be a seating diagram, and typically the person who had the most importance or status would sit toward the head or the front of the gathering, and the person who had the least status would sit toward the rear or would appear to sit in kind of some subservient position relative to the host. You might remember a parable Jesus taught about this in the Gospel of Luke and in the other Gospels about when you have a dinner gathering and you've been invited to it, that you shouldn't go sit at the place of most importance. You should actually go sit at the place of least importance and let the host elevate you upward rather than sitting at the place of honor and then finding out that you've actually been demoted in the process. What this entire first section in verses one through five are trying to help us understand that when we practice this kind of personal favoritism, James says in verse four, have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil motives? We need to let that sink in carefully, that these judgments with evil motives, well, what's the motive? Well, the motive is to curry favor with the wealthy and the affluent. And James would have us understand that this is the opposite of faith. It's born from a lack of certainty in Christ that somehow we believe that we don't have enough in Christ, and so we curry favor with we believe with people that we believe have deeper resources to help us. And it's this lack of trust that helps us or moves us away from a life of wisdom into a life of foolishness. The key passageway here is this, is that faith in Christ is a singular thing. You know, the text on the surface in verses one through five is about how the community gave the rich priority over the poor and how that's a bad thing. And it's true, it is. But the meaning of this text is much deeper in what it's communicating to us about that kind of a community. That when we practice these forms of personal favoritism, these inner judgments about others, it's about Jesus Christ being deposed as our priority. In other words, the faith that we have in Christ no longer becomes a singularity or the most important priority and moves down the list. This is why James tells us that our faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1, we can't have that with an attitude of personal favoritism. John Wesley, in his famous covenant prayer, said that Jesus is either Lord of all or not at all. And I think those words need to ring true, not only in this text, but for us as well, that faith in Christ really must become for us a singular thing. The text continues to make an argument about why this kind of personal favoritism is an error. And in verses five to seven, the author helps us understand that this is an error, not for for many reasons, but for one of them is that it's a short-sighted experience. It's a short-sighted way of looking at things. And the writer wants them to think about their own experience of this to understand how short-sighted they really are. 
And so in verses 5 to 7, we hear these words. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? You know, it kind of recalls the the teaching of Jesus here about the rich and the poor, about how those who are the most marginalized or at the sidelines of society will be inheritors of the blessings of the kingdom of God. But it recalls a broader Jewish wisdom tradition that we've talked about, that in the time at which James is written, he's kind of speaking into this Jewish wisdom tradition about how we're to respond in moments of suffering or hardship, that our lurch isn't to be toward the people who can help us, in other words, the wealthy or affluent, but rather our movement needs to be toward God and God's provision for us. And verses five through seven want us to understand that God is aligned with the poor. Now, I think oftentimes when we read scripture, it's easy to simply look at the elemental way in which God is aligned with the poor and simply say that that's a true fact. What's beneath the surface there, I think, that we need to pay attention to is that the the poor, those in poverty, they have a deeper sense of self-awareness of their need. And it's this deeper sense of self-awareness, this deeper sense of being marginalized or pushed to the side that drives a level of integrity and honesty in their relationship with God. So God is is more aligned because there's a deeper sense of self-awareness, whereas with the rich and affluent, all of their possessions uh, create a form of deception in which they think they're blessed because they have stuff and they have means. And that's not what we need to hear in this text. In, In verse five, it makes it very clear that they're poor now, but they are rich in faith and they'll be heirs heirs with God and heirs of God's blessings. We need to hear this carefully. God is aligned with the poor. And the writer of James kind of makes an appeal here to common sense in verses five through seven. Says in verse six, says, but you've dishonored the poor man in doing so. And he gives them a rhetorical question. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? So this notion of court proceedings, these decision-making processes, these judicial uh, events are very much at the forefront of this passage. Because remember, back in verse 2, James talked about this assembly or this church meeting, this potentially decision-making the church was having. And so in the same way, this argument comes back to haunt them when James lifts it up. He says, aren't the rich the same people that drag you to court? Aren't they the same people that bring their complaint against you? So how is it that our church assembly now has become just like their assembly? You see, partiality is about power and about how easily we can become that which we despise. And this really takes us to the second key passageway I'd like to lift up, that equity is part of our wonder-working witness. So many places make judgments and distinctions about people. And James is making the argument that judgments and distinctions between people have no place in the life of the early church. And in the ancient world, like today, these judgments and distinctions meant everything. And what the radical witness of Christian community is for James is that there's to be a practice of equity, not equality, but equity, a way in which every person is given exactly what they need in order to attain this sense of being a child of God and that we are brethren together. 
finally, James closes out this section of scripture with now a biblical imperative. As if the common sense way of understanding this problem didn't make any sense, James now wants to highlight the way in which, from a biblical perspective, um, there's no possible way we can show partiality and have some kind of personal favoritism between us within the body of Christ. And so in verses 8 to 13, James makes an argument from the Jewish law. And the first part of that argument we find in verse number 8. It says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. That's really the first argument here, that loving your neighbor as yourself really sums up what we need to hear here. This particular piece of Jewish law is lifted from the book of Leviticus. And we hear this truth within the Jewish tradition, and which is why we hear it from Jesus in his teaching and why we hear it from the apostle Paul as well that the, the whole law is summed up in loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. You see, partiality and favoritism is not loving your neighbor. There's a judgment that we've made in the midst of that partiality. There's a judgment that we've acted upon. And in creating that kind of judgment, we've established the rule, not for others, but actually for ourselves. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But then there's the second understanding of the Jewish law, that there's a deeper part of Jewish wisdom teaching sitting here, that if you break one part of the law, you're actually guilty of all of it. It says in verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. This is not a new concept within the early church, and the reason it's not is because it's not a new concept within Jewish teaching. Paul embodies this in his letter to the Romans in chapter 3, where he talks about how all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and makes the case as to why that is true, because if you break one part of the law, you've broken it all of it. We hear Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, where he tells us that, you know, you've heard it said, to before, said before that you shall not commit murder, but Jesus says, if you look upon another person with murder in your heart, you're guilty. So it's not just the action, it's also the intentionality that there's a way in which Jewish wisdom wants us to understand the law as being um, not, not a tutor and a guide necessarily, but to help us understand that we all are in a place of deep need and that we all are in a place of the need of God's grace. That transgression really is binary. Either you keep all the law or you break all of it. There's really no middle ground. And Jewish wisdom is trying to drive us to a place of a more sophisticated understanding of our ethical life. It's not just about whether you can keep the law or not keep the law. It's about whether or not the drive and the momentum of your life is that you love your neighbor as yourself. Which really takes us to the third part of this argument about Jewish law. It, what the writer tells us in verse 12 is this, is so speak and act as those who are judged by the law of liberty. There is those two words, speak and act, together again, just like they were in chapter one. It takes us back to this notion of being not just hearers, but doers as well. We're gonna talk more about that in the coming weeks. Speak and act like you will be judged. And it, what it does is it draws this entire section together in James, that when you gather to make judgments, in other words, when you gather for your meetings, ensure that you remember the law of liberty. Now, when is judgment merciless? Well, judgment is merciless when ours is. 
In other words, when we practice this form of partiality or personal favoritism, we've really broken the law of mercy. The idea here is that mercy triumphs over judgment is what James concludes with. This is a deep thread of the Jewish wisdom tradition, that mercy triumphs over judgment. And the key passageway here is this. The error to make is on the side of mercy, never judgment. The scriptures are clear. Which error is the most dangerous? Which one is life-giving? And this is what the law of liberty is that the author refers to in verse 12 and also back in chapter 1. The law of liberty is for us to determine what is it that is life-giving and what is it that's death-dealing. And which of those frames are we going to live in? A life-giving frame or a death-dealing frame? Because the whole law boils down to loving God and loving neighbor. The question is, is how we're going to embody that in a life-giving way or a death-dealing way. And we do that with our words, our actions, our doings, our thoughts. In every way, we have opportunities to give life to others or to deal out death. And the writer of James is telling us is that when we practice any kind of personal favoritism, we're dealing death, but yet we have an opportunity to give life by leading a life that draws the community of Jesus into equity together. That's it for this week. Many thanks to the Reverend Deborah Brady, the fantastic people of the First United Methodist Church of Modesto. They're using this podcast, Passages, as part of their sermon series on the book of James. I hope that you are blessed by Passages as you prepare to receive the sermon each week throughout these late summer and fall months. For now, I bid you all grace. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.